Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're glad to have you joining us on today's edition of the show. We've got a great lineup, and leading off is Dr. Griffin Rogers. Dr. Rogers is the director of the NIDDK, part of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Rogers, great to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me on your show. You know, there's all these uh, alphabet soups, if you will, when we talk about the National Institutes of Health. And NIDDK, I mean, people may have heard of it who are tuning in today, but help us understand what those initials stand for. Sure. Well, the national NIDDK the national the national stands for the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Diseases. That's one of the 27 institutes and centers at the National Institutes of Health, and our institute is responsible for some of the more common and chronic and costly and consequential diseases affecting Americans today: diabetes, obesity, kidney disease, benign urology, as well as hematologic conditions. Now, I think the last one is the real shocker, at least for me. Uh, you know, I would think of someone, you know, leading this uh, this branch. Uh, basically, they'd be a, a diabetes specialist, maybe a gastroenterologist working with digestive problems, or or maybe a nephrologist, a kidney specialist. But your actually specialty is not any of the specialties that seem to be encompassed in NIDDK's name. Well, yes, uh, as it turns out, the precursor of NIDDK was something called NIAMDD, which stands for the National Institute of Arthritis. And, must, and, and metabolic diseases, and it occurred at a time when we were developed uh, now almost 70 years ago in the 50s um, when most blood diseases, hematology diseases, were thought to be nutritional in origin, like iron deficiency, mm. folate deficiency, and B12 deficiency. So that's always been a part of what we do. And that is your specialty training, right? Aren't you a hematologist, a blood specialist? I am a, I am a hematologist by training, exactly. But I'm also an internist, and I've had a lot of experience in treating patients with general internal medicine problems, and that's really what we do, diabetes, other endocrine disorders, uh, digestive diseases, nutritional disorders, liver disease, kidney disease. Uh, so an internist and a hematologist. Now, you immediately have the ears of Indian country when you're speaking diabetes and kidney disease. I know uh, if you look at a, a calendar... National Kidney Month is March of every year, and that's one of the areas you specialize in at your division or branch. I don't know the correct terminology to use for uh, uh, NIH. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kidney disease is so important. It's really over-encompassing, and of course, what's driving the kidney disease problem that we have in this country, and it's a disease, chronic kidney disease, a serious condition affecting 30 million adults uh, in the U.S., but in particular, what's driving that number is the number of people that are affected by either diabetes or high blood pressure. Uh, and of course, about one in three people with diabetes and one in five people with high blood pressure also have kidney disease. And certainly in Indian country, uh, diabetes is quite prevalent and so is chronic kidney disease. It's shocking as I travel around Indian country, just uh What's happening? There's great progress being made, and, and you probably have seen some of the data that there are encouraging things happening with diabetes among Native American communities. But still, I'll talk with, with uh, 
individuals and they'll say, hey, we just got a new dialysis center, but we'd sure rather not have to need it. And that's really a challenge. Kidney diseases are largely preventable, though, aren't they, Dr. Rogers? Well, in certain instances, it is. And in fact, in kidney disease in, in, in the Native American uh, population uh, in Indian country, that was the first circumstances in which we've seen uh, within the last 10 years a decline in the number of people with chronic kidney disease that actually uh, do not progress to end-stage kidney disease. I referenced that 30 million adults that in the U.S. with chronic kidney disease, but among those numbers, there are about 700,000 that have end-stage kidney disease who either require, as you indicated, dialysis or, in certain instances, a transplant in order to maintain life. That rate of progression uh, in Indian countries, because of the early recognition uh, and the uh, institution of therapies that can slow the progress and delay it, uh, has been a good achievement. Still, there is ways to go, and that's certainly something that is really one of the reasons that we try to, in the month of March, raise awareness of a disease which has been considered a silent disease because oftentimes people aren't symptomatic until very close to the kidneys are about to fail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the uh, things that brought this home is I was speaking to a group of tribal health professionals a while ago. I'd recently written a book called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, and so we were speaking about high blood pressure in, in Native populations. And one of the community health workers said, you know, I was just in someone's home, and they were shocked. They had been diagnosed as having kidney failure. They were being prepared for dialysis. And they said, well, how could I have kidney failure? I never had diabetes. And what they had was uncontrolled high blood pressure. So like you mentioned, often no symptoms. And in Indian country, many people have that connection, diabetes and kidney disease. But that other big contributor, high blood pressure, sometimes slips off the radar screen, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And as, <clears throat> as you uh, certainly know, one can actually lose up to about 25% of the original kidney function and be totally asymptomatic. And it's oftentimes once you develop these symptoms, such as you know leg swelling and, and symptoms related to anemia or heart disease or, or even bone disease, that you're already in the later stages of kidney disease and may need requirements uh, for eventual uh, dialysis and require you know uh, some kind of uh, um, venous access uh, to, to begin uh, dialysis. Uh, that's why, you know, we, we really do strive to try to raise awareness so that if people have diabetes or high blood pressure or if they have a family history or if they are a part of the certain racial and ethnic groups, including American Indians and Hispanics and African Americans, since they are at greater risk, to make sure that once they see their health care provider, they ask three important empowering questions. Have I been tested for kidney disease and what do the tests results say about my, the health of my kidney, how often should the kidneys be rechecked, and what should I do in the meantime to keep my kidneys as healthy as possible, as long as possible? Well, let's look at those three questions in some detail, because as a physician myself, I mean, there's different tests that can check for kidney function. I mean, sometimes we'll do a, a urine test that looks for early signs of protein in the urine. Other times we'll do a blood test. Do you have specific recommendations for our listeners as to what they should be asking their doctors for? Absolutely. This is exactly as you indicated. There are two tests. Uh, one is a simple blood test uh, that will uh, determine the rate at which uh, the, your kidneys are filtering the blood, uh, uh, so-called
called GFR, or glomerular filtration rate. That's determined based upon what the, what the blood level of a certain uh, uh, protein is. The second test is an indication of how well your body is uh, not only excreting, but also retaining important uh, molecules like protein. Uh, as the, the, uh, those filters get damaged, they, their ability to retain uh, in those important molecules like albumin and other proteins uh, gets lost. And so the presence and the extent of which there is protein in the urine is a good indication of the amount of damage that the kidneys have suffered thus far. So those are very two simple tests uh, that can be done, uh, and then they should be repeated at certain intervals depending upon what is found. So typically, when we have someone with diabetes, we're often recommending some of those screening tests on a yearly basis. Is that based on current guidelines, or is that just kind of based on practice uh, uh, patterns throughout the country? Sure. Well, that's, that's based upon current uh, uh, practice as well as guidelines. Obviously, your healthcare provider will, will help decide how often uh, you should be tested. If you have diabetes, as you mentioned, you should be tested every year. Uh, high blood pressure, depending upon what the initial values are, that might be uh, repeated uh, every year. It, it may be less frequently if, if you exhibit no signs but just are still at risk of the disease. So we've talked about screening, and one of the messages we hope is coming through loud and clear, if you're listening to American Indian Living today, you want to be part of some type of regular kidney screening, making sure that you don't have serious kidney problems that creep up on you, and the doctor's saying, I've got bad news, we've got to prepare you for dialysis. But Dr. Rogers, you mentioned some other good news, that there are actually things we can do to prevent our risk of perhaps ever needing serious uh, kidney attention in the form of dialysis or a transplant, what kind of things can increase our likelihood that we'll maintain healthy kidney function throughout our lives? Obviously, if one has diabetes or if one has high blood pressure, and oftentimes as a physician, you know frequently it's not either one or the other. Oftentimes these travel together. Mm -hmm. Getting the appropriate levels of blood glucose control, or it's called hemoglobin A1C, which is sort of the average glucose control over the previous three months, and reaching a target goal that's between the patient and the healthcare provider, getting that under control is important uh, in terms of slowing the progression. Blood pressure, getting the blood pressure uh, at levels uh, which con uh, continue to be within sort of the guidelines. And those have changed recently, uh, by the way, as you probably are aware. Mm -hmm. uh, we normally used to think about getting values less than 140 over 90. More recent work has suggested that maybe our target should be 130 over 80, but that difference from circumstance to circumstance, and that's why it's an individual healthcare provider discussion that one should have. A third factor is a cholesterol. We know that high levels of cholesterol independently can damage the small blood vessels. So that's a third target that people should look at. And then uh, fourthly, smoking. Mm. Smoking has deleterious effects on both small and large blood vessels, and particularly in the kidney. So adopting a way and encouraging patients to uh, use one of the many methods that seem to, to achieve smoking cessation is so important to consider. So those are sort of general uh, targets that one should think about. But there are medications that exist, uh, so-called uh, ACEs and ARBs. We use these three-letter uh, acronyms, but they refer to specific classes of medicine uh, that not only have improvements in blood pressure control, but they can also uh, reduce the amount of protein that's excreted uh, in the urine and kind of slow the progression in many instances of kidney disease uh, in patients. As uh, 
your listeners undoubtedly are hearing on the television, there are particular classes of drugs that are being used to treat diabetes, which uh, have been shown in clinical trials to improve kidney or heart function uh, in patients as well. And uh, we'll be seeing more and more of these targeted types of therapies coming out as more research uh, as uh, will be coming out. So those are some general areas. Well, our time is rapidly slipping away, but there's one last question that I think begs to be answered, and it has to do with the organization of the NIH. Some years ago, I had the privilege of um, visiting one of the NIDDK offices, and I was surprised uh, to learn that it was in Phoenix, Arizona. Do you still have uh, an NIH presence there in Phoenix? We do. We have one of our intramural laboratories uh, in Phoenix near the Gila River area, and uh, we've been there for uh, about 40 years now. That is tremendous. I appreciate the partnership between the Pima peoples and the NIH. I know that's given a lot of great insights into diabetes throughout the world. Absolutely. Some of the seminal discoveries that have uh, not only benefited the uh, population of Pima Indians, but other Indian populations as well as some more general populations that really resulted from some great insights that have resulted from long-term studies of both observational as well as intervention studies that have been done there. Even the description, for example, of gestational diabetes, a type of diabetes that occurs during pregnancy, which often goes away after the child is delivered. And the fact that not only is that mother still at great risk of developing diabetes later on in life, but the infant born during that pregnancy is at greater risk for developing diabetes mm-hmm. compared to their sibling when the mother did not have gestational diabetes originated from observations in the population and has then subsequently been substantiated in other sites, leading to more aggressive ways of making sure that uh, those infants, for example, are followed very carefully and the mother is subsequently followed in other pregnancies. Uh, And I can go on in terms of uh, other important observations that have led to better improvements in terms of of treatments and preventive measures in the population uh, have come out of our studies uh, there. And it's really a good partnership with the patients uh, and the, our research community. So, Dr. Rogers, if someone wants more information about kidney health or about your department in general, what should they do? Uh, they can visit our website at niddk.nih.gov, or they can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at niddk.gov. And thanks again for giving me this opportunity to speak with you and your listeners on this important uh, condition of chronic kidney disease. Thanks again, Dr. Rogers. Thank you. That was Dr. Griffin Rogers, the director of NIDDK. We're going to step away. We'll come back to more on American Indian Living. Another great guest making a difference in Indian country, how it can make a difference for you. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't you go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical. 
medical unit. Respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose on today's edition of American Indian Living. We've got another great guest, as I promised you before the break. We're transitioning from the eastern side of the United States and the National Institutes of Health now to the West Coast. And we've got Fook Lay, a physician. He's the Associate Clinical Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of California of San Francisco. It's great to have you with us, Fook. Thank you, David. Now, you've got this uh, long title. You're involved in clinical medicine at a prestigious university, but you have rural health and Indian health very close to your heart. Now, a lot of people say, well, that sounds like a disconnect. Why would somebody in San Francisco have an interest, but you've just got a fascinating story. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, uh, and I think the way that I was born into this world is uh, I do feel uh, a small part uh, that we have some shared experiences with uh, tribal communities here in the, in the U.S. So I was born in Vietnam, in a rural area of Vietnam, right after the, the war ended. That was 1975 is when it ended. And I was born in 1976. And as you may know, Vietnam was colonized by multiple countries in the past. And so the experience of, of living with historical trauma, living in a colonized setting, a lot of uh, oppression from foreign powers, uh, it's something that was a huge part of my life until I left Vietnam, uh, which was when I was five years old. And during those five years in Vietnam, I didn't have uh, essentially any access to healthcare. It was a post-war setting, and the entire country was essentially decimated by uh, millions of tons of bombs and 
out of the U.S. and dropped them in the South. Uh, and I didn't have, actually have access to healthcare until I arrived in Hong Kong in the mm. refugee camp. Uh, we arrived there by boat. Uh, and during that, that time, that year that I'd been in, uh, in Hong Kong, that was the first time I had ever seen a, a, a physician that um, took care of me and my, and my health needs. I was a sickly kid. My mom said that I was smaller and than anybody else that was you know, on the shorter side. Uh, and it wasn't for a couple of decades that I realized it's not because of any genetic predisposition, but rather I had, I had been infected with a common intestinal parasite that was treated literally with the power of a single pill, mm. uh, and that, that was deprived of me uh, for for five years of my life, and sometimes I joke with my some of my students because I, I teach global health at University of California at Berkeley as well, and I sometimes joke that I could have been two inches taller, literally, uh, mm. if I had not had the this affliction, uh, this disease of poverty, uh, and and so the first uh, stage of my life was was truly as a a victim of many of the structural causes that uh, that cause harm to um, people like me, people who are uh, living under um, uh, colonization. Uh, and so that has, it took me many, many years to understand all of these things. You know, it's one thing to live it, it's another thing to actually give voice to, to these power structures mm-hmm. and to the violence that it can cause on somebody's body, like, for example, my own body. Mm. Uh, and that uh, that is that realization wasn't until I went to medical school and beyond. Um, and that is those are some of the experiences that led me directly to focus on health equity, uh, which is different from health equality among the most oppressed groups. And in the U.S., one of the most oppressed communities uh, historically has been tribal communities, Native American communities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned, Fook, this difference between health equity and health equality. Those sound like the same thing to most people. Help us understand what the difference is. Sure, I'm happy to. And I'd like to use the example of um, essentially a baseball field. Not, not, not everybody uh, knows baseball, but most people uh, living in the U.S. know about baseball. And imagine if you were um, three feet tall and four feet tall and five feet tall, and you were looking at through, you were looking from the back of the baseball field, trying to look over the fence to watch the game. Well, equality would dictate that somebody who would want to help you would give each person a a crate stand on of the exact same height. Hmm. So the, the person who's three feet tall would be able to. On the crate, but not be able to look over over the fence. That's too tall uh, for that person. But the person who's five feet tall might have the ability to then be able to see the game. So that is what we consider uh, equality: hmm. same, fair amount of help per person. Uh, equity would dictate that everybody needs a fair shot at being able to see that ball. And so maybe the person who's three feet tall needs two crates or three crates in order to, to be able to see the game. And maybe the person fighting for just needs that one crate. So in terms of health equity, in many instances, 
because of the differences in how people, where people were born, how they were raised, the amount of resources that were given to them uh, or available to them are, would be very different. Then the responsibility of the healthcare system to provide an equitable uh, access to care might also need to, to evolve and change. And sometimes you might have to provide much more to one person who is living, say, in a, in a rural area compared to somebody in an urban area, or different resources or, or sometimes more resources need to be available to uh, populations that have uh, suffered historical trauma compared to, say, a population that's never been subjected to oppression, such as colonization. Well, this is a fascinating concept because I think for a lot of people, they say, hey, if everyone's getting equal treatment, they should be happy with that. And you're really helping us see, I think, with a, a great illustration, that there's a vast difference. And it really, Fook, it brings us to this uh, whole discussion that we've had so many times on our show. We, we refer to it a lot. People in Indian country, they don't have any any issue with us talking about historical trauma but because we have a lot of non-native listeners, I feel it's important periodically to say, hey, what's the evidence for this? I mean, you're a physician. You have a master's in public health degree. You teach at a prestigious university. You're at the University of California at San Francisco. So you're not just some guy pulled off the street and you're going to say, uh, you know, historical trauma is real. Help people who may not have grown up with this construct, who may not even have fully bought in. They're saying, oh, well, this is just kind of an excuse. Uh, people want uh, better treatment, and they're saying they've had historical trauma. Can you help uh, make that practical for us? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one practical way to look at what people mean by historical trauma is imagine somebody's you know, worldview and the idea of, of well-being, uh, i.e., a typical person living in a, a suburb, say, uh, outside of say, Cleveland, where my wife's family is from. Yeah. They've had essentially some generations of their ancestors from in a suburban area with a middle-class upbringing, with kind of the, the nuclear family type of uh, uh, upbringing, uh, which is well and good. Now, let's juxtapose that with a situation where for 100, 200, or more years that somebody else's family, say somebody who uh, grew up in a colonized setting, i.e. their ancestral lands were forcibly taken, uh, many of their, of their ancestors were killed or suffered uh, a lot of the physical and emotional um, uh, violence that was perpetrated by oppressors, i.e. the colonists. And over time, living under such circumstances actually erodes the ability for well-being. And well-being is directly related to the healthcare outcome. Hmm. Uh, well-being is required for you to achieve a full, healthy life. Uh, and we can get into more of the details, but the fact that ancestors have suffered such trauma, physical, mental trauma, that can be passed down. And we can get into the specifics of the biology, but more and more of Western bioscience has 
the trauma of a previous generation directly be passed down the experiences and affect the experiences of the next generation and even the generation after that. And you can clearly see a a line of poor health outcomes um, directly uh, from an origin of, um, like I said, you know, of conquest, of mm-hmm. being the, mm-hmm. the victim of, of conquest, which mm-hmm. in this case um, is the colonial power forces, forcing people off their land and, and relocating people against their will. Well, this is powerful stuff, but we don't want to dwell on the, the negative as important as it is to bring everyone up to speed. You're actually working on solutions. When we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Fook Lay. He's going to tell us about some exciting projects that are trying to bring health equity to areas that uh, have often lacked it. We're going to talk about some of the things he's doing in Indian country that can make a difference for you and for others. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So, whether it's around your neighborhood... Or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute, since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with Fook Lay. Dr. Fook Lay, he's an associate clinical professor of both internal medicine and pediatrics, 
at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. He has a special interest in helping people in underserved communities. It goes back to his own history. If you were with us in the last segment, he shared about his upbringing in rural Vietnam right after the war. Phuc, right now we've been talking about historical trauma before we went into the break, how that has impacted many peoples throughout the world, including Native Americans here on this continent. You haven't been content to be a scholar describing these things. You're actually trying to make a difference. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're involved with. I've been very blessed and fortunate to have had the chance to work with two projects that are trying to be in solidarity with the health equity movement. What I mean is that we need to flip the script a little bit. Historically, in tribal communities, it has been extremely difficult to bring the best and the brightest and the most committed doctor to Indian country. But we, we want to ask, why can't that be the case? And actually bring the best to serve the most underserved. And so, for example, the HEAL initiative, which stands for Health, Equity, Action, and Leadership, has been a project that brings outstanding recent uh, graduates of residency, physicians who are fully trained, and brings them to uh, Navajo Nation for a two-year uh, global health experience where they are paired with local providers providers who are from the reservation. And together, these fellows, we call them, these fellows provide care together. They are trained together in topics that, for example, like intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are trained on how to practice decolonized medicine. Uh, They get public health skills. They get a master's of public health throughout that training. And then they join a community of practice. That is, that is now a hundred people strong. Hmm. Um, that is a, now a network for what we call social medicine. So essentially, the type of medicine that you and I would want to be practiced on our families. Uh, that incorporates the not just biological uh, uh, knowledge, but also the knowledge of history and and also the knowledge of society and how it impacts uh, people's health. And so we've been, we've been working with our partners uh, on the Navajo Nation since 2014, and since then we've recruited about 100 health professionals into the fellowship. We also work at the same time with uh, international partners in very, very uh, resource-constrained uh, countries and rural areas, such as in Liberia, uh, in Malawi, and these are countries in on the continent of Africa. Um, where, and in those places, we do the exact thing where we have um, providers coming in, best doctors who are from the U.S., and then we pair them up with local practitioners in the, in the hope that they'll be, be providing outstanding care during, during those two years of fellowship. But also beyond that, they will be retained in those settings. And now they have gained a significant number of new skills in public health and other new skills so that they can actually take leading positions, take um, positions where they can improve the overall quality of, uh, of the healthcare uh, that is available to those populations. 
I mean, this is very exciting stuff. So basically right now, as you've rolled this out, you said in uh, 2014, so we're talking about uh, approaching, if you haven't already had it, the five-year anniversary of the HEAL initiative. You've been working exclusively with the Navajo Nation. Is that safe to say? Yes. And if I understand it right, just like um, someone will go through, for example, my training, I first did a, a specialization in internal medicine. After doing my internal medicine training, I could have, had there been a HEAL program back in my day, said, I want to do a fellowship on the Navajo Nation, and I would have applied, just like I could have applied for a cardiology fellowship or a pulmonary, you know, lung fellowship. Is, is that how the system kind of works? Exactly. That's exactly how it works. And our HEAL fellows are appointed through the University of California, San Francisco. So it is an academic program where the faculty are, are professors at you know, UCSF. Uh, we also have a, a wide network of on-the-ground advisors who are part of the health system and employees of the health system in our partner sites, such as on the Navajo Nation. Now, now, what I'm having trouble comprehending, if I'm hearing you right, you, you've been in existence for five years, and you've had 100 fellows? You're having 20 fellows a year jo joining a two-year program? Am I connecting the dots correctly? Uh, yes, and, and we think that there are many more health providers out there who have the absolute passion and will to join a fellowship like Heal. And I would love to see opportunities arise on other reservations with other academic partners uh, that can, can really scale up the potential of, of what Heal has, has seen to date. Uh, I do think that uh, our small success in Navajo Nation, even though we're 100 strong, um, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to what the actual need is to provide high-quality health care to the more than 2 million tribal members in the U.S. My surprise isn't that there are 100 people who would want to serve in those capacities. My surprise is just the infrastructure. I mean, I think of the fellowships that were in programs that I was connected with in my medical training, and I mean... A big fellowship might have, you know, five fellows a year or something. Maybe it's different at UCSF. No, it's not different. It's not different. In fact, we are absolutely far and away the largest fellowship at UCSF. And we're the, I believe we are the largest clinical global health fellowship in the United States. But like I said, again, even though we're at this size, if we reach some scale, the magnitude of overall the problem in this case, providing health equity to tribal communities, especially rural communities, mm -hmm. um, is so much larger than what feel right now can provide. So let's say someone's tuning in right now. Maybe they are a medical student. Maybe they are in their residency. Or maybe someone's listening. Maybe they're a, a tribal elder, and they're saying, wow, we've got one of our tribal members who's at uh, Mayo Medical School or Harvard or some other medical school, and, uh, you know, they need to hear about this program because we'd love to have them come back and um, have this additional support through the HEAL program. Is this something where you're encouraging people to reach out to you, or at this point is it almost uh, 
on an invitation basis? Is it the Navajo Nation that's doing the recruitment? How does that whole process work? Well, every year for uh, for EO, we, we recruit throughout the country. We give talks, we do webinars, um, we do email blasts, and we have a website. And anybody who's interested in collaborating can go to our website, eoinitiative.org, and see what we offer, see what our values are, uh, and and then commun- and send us an email. Now, what what here is, is in terms of our limitations, where we are absolutely committed to a longitudinal partnership on the Navajo Nation. But that doesn't mean that we don't desire uh, for other tribal communities to replicate or start their own version of appeal and we'd be much more than happy to share our curricula and, and our the lessons that we've learned uh, how we actually make it run um, and, and share whatever experience that we can have because we truly believe that there are there, what we've been able to do with our partners and our fellows is, is just again a drop in the bucket compared to what the need the true need is out there uh, not just on the Navajo nation but in on the many, many uh, privately run systems and Indian health systems. So, Fook, if I hear you correctly, if someone today is listening, they're uh, involved with tribal health in a, another tribal nation. They're not on the Navajo Nation right now, and they're saying, we would love to do something like this, maybe partner with one of the universities in our backyard. Do I hear you saying that your team is open to dialoguing with people throughout the country and saying, hey, you could set up your own HEAL-type program, partner with a school of public health, things like that. Am I hearing that correctly? That's absolutely correct. We are we are so open to that. In fact, we've been trying to encourage other tribes and universities to partner, and we would do whatever it is within our power uh, to, to facilitate those conversations. And again, we have um, a few years' worth of curricular experience and that we would be much more than happy to share. We really want to see this type of um, model really flourish and be replicated. Clearly, we, we need to um, uh, to improve on our, our, our model as well. We're, we're not even close to being uh, perfect. But we, we think we're on to something uh, with this model, and we'd love to see others create their own version of it and and we, we would love to be part of a network or a consortium of fellowships like this serving tribal communities in the, in the U.S. and also serving communities that are uh, historically oppressed internationally. Wow. This is such an exciting concept. So if someone wants more information, they just go to HEAL, H-E-A-L, initiative.org. It's that simple? Correct. And you'll find all of our contact information there. Now, if someone is listening, they're excited, but they don't have uh, Internet access, is there a way to contact you? Sure. They could um, certainly make a phone call to the Heal Initiative. Let me pull up the phone number, and I'll give that to you in just, just a moment. Sure. While you're doing that, we want to make sure that before we close out today's program, we talk about another project that you're a co-founder of. So in addition to Heal... You haven't uh, exhausted your energies and your creativity with that program. 
you've got a new initiative called ARC Health, and uh, we're yes. very interested in exploring that. But before we go to the break, do you have a, a phone number that you've been able to come up with for us? Yes, yes, area code 510-625-6026. Okay, let me see if I've got this right. So I've got area code 510-625-6026. And that is the number for the HEAL initiative. That will give me an office in the San Francisco area, correct? Correct. Okay. I'm excited, like I said, about what you're doing, what's happening in Indian country first in the Navajo Nation and hopefully beyond with the HEAL initiative. We know you're making an impact internationally as well, but we've got to talk about ARC Health. Unfortunately, the clock continues to run, and our time in this segment has essentially slipped away. Listen, we are going to be back with a final segment with Dr. Fook Lay. He's a physician. He's also got a master's in public health. He's an associate clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and he's got another exciting project that can make a difference in your community. You don't want to miss our final segment with Dr. Lay. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be back right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. 
Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. We've been talking with Dr. Fouk Lay. He's been sharing with us a vision that's been informed by his own history of historical trauma and lack of health equity growing up in rural Vietnam. Dr. Lay, you've been bringing that passion of sharing your perspective of making a difference to Indian country. We've talked about the HEAL initiative that's been impacting the Navajo Nation. And of course, it's a partnership. We're not talking about something you or UCSF is doing. You've made the point that this is really something that uh, is a collaboration between your institution and uh, the tribal nation there in the heart of Indian country there in the, in the Four Corners area. You've got another vision, though, and that vision has taken shape in the form of ARC Health. Tell us a little bit about what's behind that and what it is all about. Well, thank you, David. I, I've also been very fortunate to be able to be part of the team that started ARC Health. The inspiration behind the name ARC Health is, is a quote that's commonly attributed to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he says, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Hmm. And, and that is likely what our office is trying to do is bend that, that arc. Can we bend that arc towards justice ever so more sharply so that it's not such a long, uh, long time before people actually receive justice and in this case, health justice. Hmm. Arc health is aligned from a mission perspective with the deal initiative, but it tries to bring in a different model of bringing more top-top doctors to tribal areas, to underserved areas. When we launched the HEAL initiative, we understood that not every doctor would be willing to spend two years of their time uh, doing a fellowship, essentially doing a training program. But we do think there are many, many more doctors out there who will be willing to spend some time putting their clinical skills, their expertise, in good use, in good service on tribal health, uh, tribal land, serving tribal communities, but they may not be able to permanently uh, and may not be able to relocate their families to be, uh, for the long term. Mm-hmm. And this has been a problem in this country for several decades that there's a chronic shortage of providers. In fact, recent, very recent government reports state that their across the Indian health service, there's about a 30% vacancy rate for physicians. In wow. some areas, some areas such as uh, the Dillon's area and, or the Great Plains area, those rates may be even higher. Hmm. So it's hard to imagine how a health system can provide outstanding care when uh, it's so difficult, so challenging to bring in, uh, to bring in physicians. What our health is trying to do is go out and recruit the best doctors, uh, and these are folks who will, are going to be the most qualified and also who have a passion and that commitment to service, even though they can't do it on a full-time basis. Mm-hmm. So these doctors will, will be providing intermittent or part-time care while uh, those communities are looking for permanent positions and permanent doctors. We just know that it's for many, many reasons. Finding permanent positions to fill those spots is so challenging and hasn't been achieved for the last several decades. So, Fook, let me see if uh, we can kind of put this in perspective. Okay. You're having a challenge 
as you look at the, the landscape, and it's not you particularly, of course, we're talking about tribal health systems, having a challenge getting not only providers to fill the slots, but is it safe to say that that 30% or better vacancy rate also sometimes reflects a pattern of turnover where you might have a physician who is filling a role, but maybe they're only there for a few years and then they feel, you know, they want to go back to the big city. Is is that a, a real dynamic or is it just something that I've seen from my vantage point? Absolutely. It's, it's a real dynamic for a number of reasons. There are people who, who take a job within a rural tribe so that they can get their school loans paid off. There are many federal programs that will pay off school loans if uh, a physician signs up to work in a rural tribal area. But then once those loans are paid off, then many times that's when you see turnover of, mm. of doctors. Uh, and so it is challenging. Another uh, challenge is raising children. Um, sometimes when children are of school age, doctors want to have more choice uh, in terms of what sorts of education uh, uh, those their children can get. And that's another time when turnover rates are quite high. Uh, and so at Park Health, we really uh, have a, a keen interest in short-term and longer-term solutions. And here's, here's how we're imagining how we could be the partner in impacting the longer-term uh, solutions, which is if Park Health actually brings in revenue from the doctors that we provide, the short-term doctors that we provide, we will actually reinvest that revenue into pathway programs to train up the next generation of Native American nurses and doctors and physician assistants. Wow. So that in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, we literally would want to work ourselves out of a job. Because if in an ideal world, if health equity were achieved, then we wouldn't have a need for temporary doctors. We would have all of the positions filled and ideally by Native American providers. Because those are the folks, of course, who are serving their own communities and who are much more likely to stay for long term. Not mm-hmm. to mention, they have much more expertise because they're from those communities. And the, our, so our health model is, is based on a short and a long term vision of how we can support health equity in untribal residents. So, Fook, do I understand, too, that part of this quote, short-term model that you're talking about is different than the current model. You introduced me at a National Indian Health Board event to Dr. Mike Tutt there from the uh, Navajo Nation. And when he and I were speaking, he was talking about one of the challenges in Indian country when we have these locum tenens doctors, these temporary doctors who might come for a few months. And the, the point he made to me is often these doctors are temporary I mean, not all of them, but but some of them, they don't. They may not have the skill set. They may not have the social skills. They they may not have the commitment. And we're not trying to to brand temporary doctors in a negative way. But sometimes you don't get the best care. Do I understand that with Arc Health, your short term doctors might be making a commitment uh, that could be five or ten years in length because they're only in that tribal health center for maybe. A, a few days a month or, or a week out of every month, and then they go back to their other setting. Am, am I hearing that right? So, yes, and, and while our health has a few potential pathways for doctors to make a, make a commitment to 
what you mentioned, David, is correct. You know, we would much rather have Dr. could give a week every month or every two months, but doing it again and again and again for a number of, and not necessarily relocate their entire families, but actually getting to know the community, even if it's intermittently, mm-hmm. because over time they will be able to get to know that tribal community, get to know their patients even if they're not there full-time. So, for example, um, I just signed on to work for five days a month or so at a tribal clinic nearby in California, Northern California. And my goal, my hope for myself is not only to provide the best care I can during those days that I'm there, but also to be able to get to know the community because I am committing myself to working there for a foreseeable future. But again, it's intermittent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this is an exciting concept. Is Arc Health uh, just an organization that's formed and hasn't actually hired people, or is it actually functioning? Can someone get up and call on the phone and say, "Hey, I want to do this too. I want to spend, you know, five days a month working in a a native clinic." Well, we've been around for a few months now. Arc Health, we're uh, a young organization, but we do have exciting opportunities now and on the horizon. So what we're looking for are really committed, fantastic doctors who are very interested in giving long-term, even if it's intermittent care, uh, to tribal communities. Whether or not those tribal communities are in, literally in the backyard or they're a short light away, we can, we can work with those sorts of doctors. So uh, if you go onto our website, we're at www.org healthjustice.com. You may either email us or give us a phone call. Uh, our phone number is 925-579-1584. Let me that make... absolutely get directly connected to me, and I'd be much, much more than happy to talk to anybody who's interested. Let me make sure I have this contact information correct. So it's ARC, A-R-C, healthjustice.com. That's the website. And the phone number, 925-579-1584. Dr. Lay, our time has, uh, has slipped away. You've been a great guest. You're doing some tremendous things. Thanks for bringing your passion to Indian country. Thank you so much, David. We do have to go. But hopefully today's edition of American Indian Living has helped you to catch a new perspective and enjoy the very best of health. For all of us, I'm Dr. David DeRose. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.